you've got four books is that correct yes so there's that um, one um but yeah. there's a but there's a revised edition of that one now there's a second edition yeah i just bought that so i need to update yeah. that because i know it's more about regio and language learning as well yes yes so i expect that second edition and then there was uh, unscripted emerging curriculum in action then pedagogical documentation because documentation is tied very uh it, it, it intertwines very well with emerging curriculum and then yeah. inquiry-based early learning environments um, which really covers all of that it kind of brings it all together um under the under the title of in inquiry-based learning because i i kind of think of um emerging curriculum is coming under the umbrella, if you like, of inquiry. So there's, if yes. you think of the umbrella of inquiry-based learning, play-based learning, child-centered learning, inspirations from Reggio Emilia, emerging curriculum would all come under that umbrella. And yeah. so the book on inquiry actually is very, um, the latest one which came out last year, is very comprehensive in that way. Yeah, actually, that's the first book I, I read of yours, but I didn't know it was you when I read it, I could tie it to emerging curriculum, which I read like a six, seven months ago. You did it back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and then I'm, now I'm reading the pedagogical documentation one. Yes, yeah, great. Yeah, which mm -hmm. is really helpful because I think that's one of the most difficult things it is. teachers struggle with. And I think we'll get onto that later. But I think to start, yeah. uh, talk more about first why emerging curriculum is better than your, the alternative that I could pre describe within curriculum. Because well, a lot of people, they go, well, how do children know what they want to learn? Is the one that we always we always get, especially from parents. Yeah, well, um, it's it's hard to describe emerging curriculum in a nutshell. It, it yeah. because complex, but really, what it is is a curriculum that is, I would say, first of all, is responsive to children. It can be, um, it's mostly um, based on the observations that we make of children. And by observations, I mean um, watching them at play, watching them at work with materials, but also listening is a part of observation. Listening to their conversations, eavesdropping, if you like, um, the casual conversations. And what we're looking for when we observe is um, what are they trying to understand about the world? I mean, children really at this age in the early years, they just want to know how the world works. They're all driven by that motivation from the time they're born until they get into school. They just want to know how the world works. The world of adults is fascinating to them. Um, you know, buses and toilets and, and machines and, they, and the community, they just want to know how it all works. And so when we listen to their conversations and we watch them at play, and we watch how they use materials, we should be writing some brief notes. We don't have time in the classroom to make many notes, but we should be taking photographs and making some brief notes to reflect upon. And from those um, notes, those observations, we develop curriculum in response. So the first thing it is, is responsive. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about emerging curriculum. Some people think that, you know, in emerging curriculum, anything goes, you know, that the children lead. And that's not exactly true. Um, emerging curriculum is a collaboration. So the teacher's voice comes in. The teacher is like the, um, the interpreter, if you like, the facilitator. So the teacher's expertise in terms of the children's learning and how they learn and what they learn uh, comes into the topic that the children seem to be engaged with. So before, I'll just give you an example, um, before I mentioned toilets. Now, if you are theme-based and traditional, you would never go near a subject like that. I mean, why would you think yeah. of that? But when you think of it from a child's perspective, it's fascinating. This, you press this button or this lever and the water disappears and where does it go and what happens to it? And so I had a group of four-year-olds who were fascinated with this and they had never seen the inside of a toilet tank so we took the top off and we looked at the mechanism they had lots of questions about where does all that dirty water go and how does it get clean again to cut a very long story short what happened was is that um, we developed that into a study of, of how our water gets clean again and so we went down to the harbor and we we examined um, you know what do we see in the water is it clean is it dirty um, how does water get clean? And it, it turned into this huge inquiry, but it started with the fascination that children had um, with where water disappears to, where does it go? So those simple little things can turn into big inquiries. 
And sometimes um, what the children are interested in are very, is very short-lived. It doesn't have to be a big inquiry. It's very short-lived. It might last a day or two, but nevertheless, um, any kind of learning, whether it's um, literacy or math or science, any kind of learning can happen during a play-based inquiry. You could build, you know, it, it naturally happens. Sometimes you can, can build it in a little bit with a bit of scaffolding and adding materials, but other times it's just naturally happening. And, and so for that reason, it's very, um, it's very provocative for teachers to think about. You never get bored with emerging curriculum. It's very provocative. Sometimes you have two or three things on the go at the same time. Um, and it's good that we're here in North America, we work in teams so at this age. With this age group, we work in teams of two or three. And so we're able to handle several interests at the same time. And sometimes, yeah. it's, sometimes it's an individual child that's, that's interested in something that we follow up. Well, actually, that's the, one of the questions we got from our um, group was, well, what about if you have, say, 20 children in the class, but 20 children want to do 20 different projects? Um, one of the things we say, well, generally from experience, although some children do want to follow their own projects and they will follow their own projects from time to time, because play is so social, they usually come to the same interest. Um, mm. But obviously, you've been doing them a lot longer. Do you have the same experience? Yeah, and when we say that we're looking for children's interests and engagement, we can't possibly follow them all. That, that's impossible. Yeah. Um, we'd need a team of 10 to do that. So we, we don't, but we, we look for what children keep going back to. Uh, what, do they, um, what do they keep playing at? And what are their questions? And what are their misunderstandings? And what are their understandings? And there are some choices to be made by teachers. And this is why I would say that it's not, uh, th that it's a collaboration. It's not completely all about the children. It's focused on the children, it's child-centered, but the teacher has a voice in that there's some decisions to be made. And so yeah. let's say you've got 20 children and 10 different interests that are going on you kind of have to pull out, okay, um, what seems to be the most engaging and what, can, what do we have the materials for and what do we have the resources for, those types of things where children can get their hands on materials or get out into the community to uncover whatever it is that they're interested in. So there's those decisions to be made. And the other thing is, is that I've found I've never had a whole class that's doing the same thing at the same time, ever. Um, for all the projects and inquiries I've done with children, there's always two or three things on the go at the same time. And this is why it's so, um, it's so helpful to be working in a team. And if you're not, um, we have to remember that if you've got, let's say, half of your children, 10 children working on a particular project, they're not in a, rich, in a richly provisioned environment uh, with good materials and loose parts and all sorts of interesting things to work with. The, the other children who are at play, while some children are involved in a project, that play we know as early childhood educators is not a waste of time. It, it's very yeah. rich. It's very rich and it's very worthwhile. And we're still listening to that play while other children are doing other things. So it's like, it's, it's like, a, it's like being a choreographer, you know, you're keeping many balls in the air at the same time. So it does take some multitasking and it is more helpful to work as a team. Um, and it, it's very important to, as a team to have um, meetings to reflect together on what's going on and what sort of, um, what do we notice is bubbling up to the surface in, in terms of children's conversations and play. Yeah, I think um, one of the things teachers find most difficult is, especially if they come from a curriculum-based background, they're used to always having the children do the same thing or something yes. they've yeah. they've kind of controlled. Like you're going to the phonics table today, you're going to the math yes. table today. And yes. so when the kid, so when they go to emerging curriculum, they're like, okay, I don't know what them children are doing, but I can't go see them because I'm with these children. And so mm. they, it's hard for them to be, they're okay for like today, just to play yeah. in a construction area. If you're working with this group, you, know, you can always come back to them. Because uh, Reggio, for example, which is a big, big growing uh, brand in China at the moment, um, now they have 26 children and two teachers yes and that's a hard number to manage we're really good in our school we have a maximum 20 most of our classes have 16 and we have three teachers and a life teacher who's 
takes care of the children's that's, kind of that's daily needs. Similar, similar to here. But I was I was in Rachel Amelia and I was watching a classroom in action. And I'd already been, I you know, um, usually when you go to, have you been to Rachel Amelia? Have you been to a study? I tour? haven't. I was going to go okay. this year. So, but then it cancelled because yeah. of COVID, it couldn't happen. Yeah. So it's a really transformational experience because many of us who have for years have been using emerging curriculum and inquiry based and play based learning in North America. Um, it's a lovely experience to go there because we're very inspired by what, they, what they're doing. And uh, usually when you go into the classrooms in Reggio Emilia, you go at a time when the children aren't in the classroom because they don't want a lot of visitors, you know, these big study groups disturbing the children. You go when the children are either finished school at three o'clock in the afternoon, or you go when the children are outside. But there was one day on one school where we were able to go into the school when the children were at work. And it was fascinating. And I couldn't get over the number of parallels um, between what their teachers were doing and what I do in the classroom. And it was very um, heartening for me to see that. So when we went in, the children were very busy at play, very engaged in play. Of course, the environment there is the third teacher. It's very carefully set up with play materials. It's very, their play environment is set up in response to what's been happening the day before. And so the materials don't all change, but some materials change in response to what the children have been doing. So they're at play, all of them, they're, they're playing and they're very deeply engaged in their play. And we watched that for a while. And then there was a transition and the teacher brought out her notes and I sort of peek up, of course, this is all in Italian and I don't speak Italian. So yeah. I, um, I peeked at her, at her notes and what she had was a, a sort of a, a form on a clipboard that is very similar to what I use. And um, it, it's in one of my books. But it's, it's a form that has, uh, instead of filling in the blocks of what's going to happen in each area every day, which is pretty typical for, for most teaching environments, what I do and what they did is that they use their observations from day to day to decide where the, you know, what the children are going to be doing. And so there's a particular form where you write down your observations and your responses and your thoughts. So it's very different in that respect. And I do use that kind of planning myself. And so she called the children into a group and she pointed at like, you know, this child, this child, this child. Okay, you were working on this yesterday. So this table over there is ready for you. you know, this is their little project that they were working on. And then you six children, you're going over there with the overhead projector and you're gonna work with this digital thing. And she would have that group work over there. And she sent them off into their small groups for about half an hour to work on their projects. So the, the classroom was mostly play. Um, in a very carefully structured, no, I, want to, I don't want to use the word structured, a very carefully and a carefully planned and intentional environment. Um, uh, much thought put into the materials and what's gonna, you know, what the children are gonna be playing with. Um, and then the teachers stand back and listen and observe. And that goes on for a good chunk of time of, of their morning. And then there is this project work and that lasts as long as it lasts. There's no sort of set time frame. Um, the children might engage in their project for 10 or 15 minutes, they might engage in it for an hour, and they start to filter outside, you know, when they're finished with their project work. And all yeah. of this, all of this is being documented. They're writing, the teachers are writing notes, they're taking photographs to think about later in the day and to make so it's like a it's like a cycle. It goes round and round, you know, it goes from and I, I actually have um and I can't remember which book it is, but it's it's really the cycle of inquiry, is what it is. So there's, you know, if you think of a circle, you know, observation and listening is at the top and then you go around um, to reflecting on that with your team, reflecting on your observations, setting up the environment and the, and the plans for the children in response, and then observing again to see what happens. Because in emerging curriculum and in inquiry, you might have the best intentions as a teacher, the best plan the best response and you think it's wonderful but the children don't react in the way you think they would yeah and so there's always these tangents that the children go off in so it's very important to observe again after you put your invitation your provocation out there for the children to watch again so it, it, it involves the cycle of inquiry they mention it i think in several of my books involves slowing down to to really reflect and to really watch because i think 
when we watch, sometimes we're looking for what we expect to see instead of what's really happening. And so sometimes we have to let go of that beautiful plan because the children yes. just aren't there and, and go with their tangents because that's what they really, sometimes we get it wrong, you know, many yeah. times. Many times we think we understand what, what they're trying to get at or what they're trying to discover, but really that's not it. And the, and the joy of documentation is if you do a little rough piece of documentation, you take it back to the children, sometimes they'll say to you, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I was thinking about. And they'll correct you and then you can go off in another direction. So that's always interesting when you document. And I think a lot of teachers can sometimes forget the reflection part or they would just reflect on their own and they won't reflect on their team and then they'll jump to conclusions. And I think definitely from my, when I first started doing emerging, I think some other people, when they start going to emerging too, they sometimes, when they see an interest happen, they'll quickly associate it to your traditional curriculum topics. Yes, that they might see a child mm -hmm. role-playing doctors, for example, and then go, okay, yes. we're going to do community helpers. They're interested in community yes. helpers. Yes. They kind of and they go, they, it's, it's like a default. It's like a default yeah. back to the old sort of thematic, you know, traditional themes. Um, and, and we know that the children learn best by what they're engaged with and interested in, but getting to what they're really interested in, you have to look under the surface. So yeah. I'll, uh, I can give you another example of that. And uh, we, had a, we had a group of children in play who were day after day after day setting up the classroom as a movie theater. So they were moving chairs and lining them up and they were making screens with sheets and pretending and drawing movies on pieces of paper and placing them up on the screen, of course, drawings don't move. And so um, we had this child who was sitting, a usually very active little boy, and usually he's on the, on the go all the time. And he was sitting in front of this screen and he was sitting like this and he was frowning and frowning and he sat there for about 15 minutes and we couldn't believe it. We're like, what is he thinking about? And we didn't want to disturb him. So, when he eventually moved, we, we, we asked him, you look like you were thinking about something. He said, I'm trying to figure out how to make it move. You know, <laughs> and so, and so um, that led to a huge amount of work on how do you make images work? Um, it wasn't about movies per se. It wasn't about going to the movies. It wasn't about you know, reflection and screens and projection. You know, it wasn't about all of that. He just wanted to make his pictures move. And that drew in a lot of children around him that this fascination with making things move it, it really became more of a, a science engineering project more than anything and, and about, yeah. about eight children were involved in it but very deeply involved for weeks because it was such a puzzle and i think um sometimes if if we default to our regular themes we don't honor the depth to which children can go if given the chance and so that's why it's so important, I think, to slow down and to get multiple perspectives. And you mentioned reflecting with a team rather than reflecting by yourself. That's so important because um, when you get the chance to talk about what the children have been doing, you'll get many, you'll get many perspectives and they might disagree. Yeah. You might have different ideas and that's fine. That's actually... That, that just creates a really lively discussion and a, and a deep discussion when you don't agree. Um, and you don't have to jump to respond, you know, it doesn't have to be immediate. You don't have to respond that day or even the next day. You can take a couple of, you know, the children are happily at play and it's a very rich environment. And so that's worthwhile. And you can take the time to think, um, yeah, what, is this really, what is this really about? And, and then make a decision. And I, I must say that the teachers in Mercia Amelia, if you've seen videos of them at work um, in their teams, they're arguing all the time and they consider that um, not to be arguing, they consider that to be discussion and it's a healthy discussion and they really value that. Um, yeah. And they eventually, eventually come to consensus, but it might take a few days because of all these different points of view and every point of view is heard. Um, everybody is listened to, yeah. I saw on your website, um, so I read some of your projects you put up, I think it was quite recently you put up some projects. I saw the one with, um, where you made the glue 
and it was um, they'd like chopped it into the glue and other stuff into yes, the glue. That was um, yeah. yeah one, the student teacher put cocoa into the yeah. glue, and the children loved the smell. Mm. They, she used many different spices, but she also used cocoa, and the children loved the smell. Yeah. I tried and it this week because one of the things we have in my class developing was we don't know what where it's quite going yet but it's been an interesting food um cooking making lots of dishes in the role play area so i thought i'd try it in the art area to see if it would get them engaged i thought they would do just make things and stick it and enjoy smelling it but they actually started making potions with it which was yes. completely different to what i thought they would be doing yes i had to be careful because you can't eat it you can't eat it's glue it's glue you don't eat it at one point he had it on his finger and he looked at it and then he's I went, no. <laughs> it's really interesting because I thought, oh, it's going to go this way, but it went somewhere very different. Yes, exactly. And if you pay attention to the something different, sometimes the projects that children um, end up being engaged with are much more interesting than anything that we could think of. Yeah. I mean, that, that chocolate project began with the children's love of the smell of the chocolate. And they loved the smell and they would, they, would, they would identify all the different spices. This was by a student teacher who introduced this idea. And um, it was the student teacher who said, well, um, you like that chocolate smell. Do you know where chocolate comes from? And that started a whole discussion. It, it, this, that project was huge. Uh, there's, just a, there's just a smidgen of it on the website, just a little taste of it. No pun intended. But, um, <laughs> but it was just... Um, it, that was just sort of the beginning that I show on the website, but it was huge. It was weeks long and lots of documentation on that because the children, when they were asked, where does chocolate come from? They said the store, the grocery store. They absolutely had no idea how chocolate was really made. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I remember being a school child in Britain. We, we studied chocolate. We, we knew where chocolate came from. It was sort of like a project we did in elementary school in England. Um, and that was many years ago for me. But I, but I remember knowing where chocolate came from and how it was processed. And these children in North America had no idea where chocolate came from. And so we started introducing, um, you know, books on the topic, you know, picture books. Very hard to find good nonfiction books for children. Um, at least here it is. When you yeah. go to the library, there's all sorts of um, nonfiction reference type books for older children, but for young children, where you need less text and more really clear illustrations, mm -hmm. very little. We could find very yeah. little. We, we searched all over the place. But in the end, what we found from a local coffee shop, and this is where an, a teacher using an emergent approach has to be resourceful and has to be able to find unusual things and go out there into the community and reach out to people and network. We managed to find some cacao beans in a local coffee shop. They were on display in a jar and he lent them to us um, for the children to explore. Um, they weighed them and they drew them and they kind of had, we didn't tell them how chocolate was made. They had all sorts of theories. And then we watched a little tiny video clip. It was about five minutes of a child in a we had to search really hard to find something online that was um, appropriate. It was a child of about eight years old who lived in Costa Rica and his family had a cacao farm. And this child at eight years old was shimmying up trees, no safety gear whatsoever, shimmying up trees with a machete in his mouth. I mean, carrying, <laughs> and we were saying to the children like, this is not okay for you to do, you know, this is not okay for you to do. This is his lifestyle. Like his parents have taught him how to do this. He's under supervision. Like you have to be really careful about that. But this child shimmied up the tree, chopped down the cacao pod, which fell to the ground and opened up and there are all these beans inside. And the ch our children must have watched that sort of breaking open of the cacao pod and seeing the beans inside. They must have watched that 20 times, you know, and they couldn't believe that that's where this little bean came from. And that's how, that's where chocolate came from. And so they wanted to make chocolate and we tried and um, we created, they created this sort of concoction with cacao beans. And then we made something with it, like a little pastry that they could taste. And we were all waiting with bated breath, like for the taste of this chocolate concoction. And they tasted it and they said, 
that is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the chocolate that they expected. But the important thing is, is that they went through that huge process of learning. Yeah. And in that learning, there was lots of science. There was engineering because they built this chocolate factory out of loose parts with shoots and levers and all sorts of things. Lots of engineering. There was a ton of language. I mean, they, they, they were drawing, they were mark making, they were trying to write. They were four years old, so not writing yet, but mark making, drawing. Um, we made books of their words. We were scribes for them. All sorts of literacy involved. A lot of math involved because, you know, they were weighing and sorting and, and counting beans and how many do I need? I mean, this went on for weeks. So for parents who are, who are worried about academics, you know, it's all there. It's all embedded um, in this type of play and investigation. It's embedded. But I think that's where documentation comes in because we do have to make it visible for them. We have to make it yeah. um, overt. We, we, you know, we have to make it so that, so that parents can see it. And yeah. we have to be able to, that means that we have to be able to recognize it and articulate it. Actually, one of the, you just kind of answered it, but one of the questions we had was what about schools that they have some academic requirements and the kids need to learn a certain amount of math concepts or literacy yeah. concepts, PVC words, et cetera, et cetera. How do you fit that in the emerging curriculum? I think you kind of answered that, but I, I think maybe teachers will still be, oh, I only have one year with them. Um, for example, in our school, we have mixed age in pre-K, which is three, four and fives. But then we also have a separate kindergarten age, which is just the five and six year olds. So they only have one year of the kids and then they're the ones who have maybe more academic requirements to fit into it. Yeah, that's very similar to here. Um, yeah. Uh, in, fortunately, what's happened in Canada, and I'm, I'm sitting right now on the east coast of Canada in a tiny little province called Nova Scotia, but Canada is a huge country and right across Canada, um, every province has its own early learning framework. And it's not a curriculum as such. It's not that set in stone. Finally, finally, after decades of us advocating and pushing, these um, early learning curricula have become much more appropriate, play-based, regio-inspired. So we actually have a document now that supports that, which is amazing, you know, for early yeah. childhood. There's none of this, like, you know, the child has to learn this, 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 and this in this framework. It's very open. And so uh, we're fortunate in that respect, but it was a long time coming and it took a lot of work on the part of early childhood educators with the government, you know, pushing and pushing to get that. Now in elementary school and children here enter elementary school at age five, as you're describing in kindergarten, that would be the same here, five, six years old entering formal school in kindergarten. Kindergartens now are becoming more play-based and that, that wasn't the case before. It was very rigid. They had to learn this amount of stuff before they got to first grade. Now that is um, kindergarten teachers in more progressive schools are starting to, or, or I would say their boards in the, in the more, uh, their boards of directors and their administration are starting to become a bit more progressive in kindergarten and to allow for much more play and learning through play. So it takes a long time to get there if you're in an old traditional approach. Um, and if academic objectives, um, if, you know, if that's the goal to meet those academic objectives, we have to be very inventive in terms of um, being able to provide materials and experiences that the children are interested in, but that will support those objectives. So um, if, if one of your objectives is, that, you know, I don't know, maybe you can throw one at me, um, you know, an objective in kindergarten has to be met. Um, we have to think about how, how does the environment, first of all, how does the environment support that? So for instance, in my classrooms, I always had um, a writing center um, not, not that the children had to spend a certain amount of time in the writing center, but it was a, it was a valued part of the classroom. And in that writing center was everything you could possibly think of, you know, blank books and all different kinds of paper and every kind of writing tool and clipboards and whiteboards and everything you could think of to do with writing rulers and, you know, uh, 
fine fine tip markers, which the, uh, not not Crayola markers, not markers for drawing, but fine tipped pens, which the children loved because of the intense black mark that it made. It encouraged them to pick up a pen and make marks. It was yeah. the tool itself, and so. There was all sorts of experimental print and invented spelling and and um, emerging into literacy going on in that writing center all the time during play. Our job was to pull those samples out, those bits of bits and pieces of writing that or mark making that might look like scribble to a parent, but it isn't. We know it isn't. Yeah. We can we can pull out what the child knows that you know print goes from top to bottom in, in North America, goes from left to right. And so, um, and the types of marks that they were making and the control that they had or didn't, these were all things linked to literacy that parents might not realize. And so we have to make that visible. And so it's there, it's, it's there, math is there in the block area, especially if you have um, yeah. weights and measures and rulers and, and, and those types of things, the math is there, we have to show it. Uh, and that's that's the skill that we need with emergency. Um, I think um, with uh, note like writing notes and stuff, I think people underestimate how much children actually like doing it. Um, I was really surprised at how often kids would just go to our message center and just write things and make notes. And we've got some girls at the moment making watches, like the phone watches, yes. and then yes. they're writing on it, and then they're calling me in the classroom. And it's just, and they do it every day and they make lots of different notes and, it's, it's, and people think, oh, they're never going to be interested in writing unless we give them a worksheet to write on. Exactly. Come to it really naturally, it's really surprising. Absolutely naturally, in, as long as they are provided with um, the, the materials to be able to enact real life situations, because they're interested in real life. They're interested in functional print, like how does print work and what can you do with it? So I would often say to children, if they ask me, you know, oh, we, you know, our, our, our markers are getting dry and we need new markers, I'd say, I'd say to them, would you write me a note about that so I don't forget? And they would write me a note that I could hardly, you know, although you do learn to read kindergarten writing, you, um, I could hardly make out the note, but it, I, it was a written reminder. And then they each had a message box so they could send each other messages. And, um, and then they would, you know, label, put a little bit of print on their artwork to explain what it was about, you know, just um, not print for the sake of learning print, but print that's used in functional, authentic ways is much more meaningful to children. And they love that. And then they each had a journal. Uh, that's a very loosely phrased term, you know, I don't mean that it's a journal that they wrote in every day, but they had a blank book that they could draw or write in or make marks in any time, you know, and those were like um, a record, you know, of sometimes, you know, you'd see a, a, a beautiful block building and the children would make a little label um, and so that the cleaning person wouldn't clean it up, wouldn't disturb it because they wanted to continue with it the next day. So they would make a little label, please do not touch, please do not knock down. Of course, the cleaning person probably couldn't read it because this was all invented spelling and, yeah. you know, marks. Um, but we would we would photograph that and, uh, you know, and put it into their portfolio, the, the child's portfolio, so that when parents came in to discuss their progress, we had something to say, okay, your child understands the function of print. He understands that it carries a message and, and look at the way he's formed these marks. We had something to talk with parents about. And that was that was very helpful. I want back to one, something you said earlier when you went to Reggio. You said how the, the teacher prepared the environment and said, "Oh, you know, you're going to this area today. I prepared something for you." So I'm just there. One of the teachers in our school asked me to ask you that her style is more kind of loose, where she'll prepare the environment but then go to the kids. You know, go play where you want to play. If you want to come with me, we're going to do this at table. If not, you can go to the other areas I've set up for you. Her yeah. co-teacher is more like you know. I prepared something for you so uh, you know you're going to go to this table where you can do this I prepared it mm -hmm. interest that. so and um, so I know kind of what were your feelings on that is it good to have kind of both and swing between the both or is one more preferred? yeah I I would say I am more like her um my classrooms were always you know um a very carefully prepared environment um and then let them go at it you know just see see what happens and I saw my role as a uh, as an observer, a, a scribe, a facilitator, um, but, you know, watching and listening in this very carefully prepared environment to see what actually happens. And the bulk of our morning was spent in that way. 
And, and, and the same is true of Reggio Emilia. And that, that project work I described when they went off into their groups, that was only half an hour of their morning. Um, it was a very small piece of their morning. So the bulk of their morning was play, very rich, well-provisioned play with yep. teachers being very observant. And that's the way, that's what I do too. Um, and then half an hour of small group work also, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigid and some groups would have two children and some groups would have six, depending on the level of interest. But even those small group times were based on what had happened the day before. It was in response to something. It wasn't just something that the teacher wanted to do. It was the decision was made because it was in response to an observation from the previous day. So yeah. very, still very responsive, still very child-centered. <clears throat> um. I think uh, what I'm talking about now, I know you've mentioned before New Zealand and you talked about uh, in your book, the emerging curriculum, your first book, you talked about how important it was to be responsive for emerging curriculum, to really look at the different approaches from around the world. Um, and you talked about Canada, you said it's getting much better with how they're doing things. Actually, China has me very good their, their early years um, net, uh, framework. It's, and yes. the, the problem with a lot of expensive schools, the private schools, is they adopt the American curriculum or the EYFS. Yes. And then that's where the academic stuff comes in. The requirements for China is very good. I think New Zealand is probably one of the best in the world. Yes, um, I agree. Mm. And I'm particularly about learning stories, which I found really interesting. Um, I wanted you to talk a bit about that, because you've done some research into that, and also about kind of portfolios and documentation as a whole in terms of communicating to parents and other teachers in your team. What Document, yeah, documentation to me has been hugely important in my whole, ever since I've been using emerging curriculum and been inspired by Reggio Emilio, so we're talking decades, uh, documentation has been hugely important in that practice. I, when I teach at the local college, um, I teach a course called Emerging Curriculum and Documentation because the two go together. You know, yeah. they're, they're, I, I can't imagine one without the other. And so um, learning stories um, are very um intimate in that the voice if you read Margaret Carr's work you know the voice of a learning story is speaking directly to the child so um, I have a lovely piece about a little girl called Valentina who is um, her first language was German and then she also she was just beginning to speak English when she joined us and so um, it would say Valentina I noticed this you know you were playing on the chalkboard today and you and and I tell her what I noticed and then there is the um, and then there is the teacher's voice that comes in and says that he's speaking to Valentina's parents and says, you notice that if you, if you look at these marks, you know, blah, 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 you know, there is a sort of interpretation, if you like, for the parents. And then it goes home, but it asks for the parents feedback, you know, the, par the parents voice, the parent response is encouraged. And that's really important. So it gets it gets uh, it creates a dialogue, if you like, between parent and teacher and the child. And so those are, I, I love learning stories. And of course, because they're about individual children, they can go into the child's portfolio. Yes. So portfolios are very useful with emerging curriculum because, because typical um, structured um, sort of uh, checklists and those types of things don't work for emerging curriculum, you know, because it's much more organic. And so portfolios provide um, a way to look back over time at the child's work. Um, you put samplings, you know, I always put samplings of the children's work. And if they don't want to part with it, if they want to take it home, I photocopy it yep. or take a photograph of it. So, and you can do digital portfolios. They don't have to be hard copy. But, um, do you have a preference between digital and physical? I like physical. I like physical because then the children have access to them at any time. Yeah. What I do with portfolios is, I, you know, there's this collection of the child's words, the child's work, um, teacher interpretations. Um, it's a real mix of things that are in it, but it's it's basically the child's um, portfolio, and. Um, I like to keep it on a low shelf accessible so the children can look at it themselves and leaf through it. And they love doing that. And you hear them say things like, oh, I used to think that this, you know, but now I know that this, you know, and they can see their own progress in their thinking and their understanding of the world. And they love that. It's very meaningful to them. And yeah. it's meaningful to parents because you can sit down. It's another form of documentation and you can sit down 
and have a conversation about it with the parent. And you can show them, you know, if the parent says, well, you know, they don't seem to be doing any math worksheets and you can flick through the portfolio and say, okay, let's look at this play and let's look at this photograph. Here's the math that's going on here. Yeah. And you can explain, it's very concrete. You can, you can explain yeah. it. I, when I saw, I think it was actually the play first summit that uh, happened earlier this yeah. year. And I saw the lady from New Zealand who was talking about her learning stories. Yes. And I love just how the children get out and always looking at it. The problem I have with digital portfolios is it always feels distant from the children. Like you, exactly. You the child can't access them without an adult. And what use is that? You know, so. but then on, and on the, the other the other form of, do sorry, the, the other form of documentation that is child-driven is floor books. And floor books, um, I don't know if you're using them in China or either wherever our listeners are, mm -hmm. but floor books are big formats. Um, if you look up Claire Warden in Scotland, she she started this trend towards floor books. It's documentation done with the children. So the big book sits on the floor and you might do a page a day, you might do a page a week, but it's all driven by the children. The children draw in it, they write in it, they dictate, there's a couple of photographs. It's very rough and ready, very raw. It's not meant for display. And it's perfect for people who don't have time to document the children. They're not given time within their organization to do nice documentation pieces for display. This is done with the children on the spot, rough and ready, perfect for when you don't have time to do anything else. Yeah. I was going to say, with the only positive for having online portfolios is, um, say, like in China, most of the schools I've worked in have been private schools, so they're very wealthy, rich families. And then uh, dad's always away, for example, always on business. So yes. then with that, he can always access it, he can always see it. Yes, where he is it's wonderful. Birth. Yeah, it's wonderful for sharing, you know, and, and most most um, childcare centers and preschools and kindergartens here use a mixture. So they use uh, learning stories for portfolios. They use um, beautiful display panels that they've created in the school itself, in the hallway, so that when parents are coming in to pick children up, they can see them, the children themselves can see them and revisit them, which is very valuable. Um, and then uh, they use digital documentation to send home occasionally so that those, you know, it can be the parents, if they choose, can share it with grandparents or with dads who are away or whatever. Um, but digital doc documentation is good for people who are on the go and, you know, aren't in and out of the school all the time. How would you merge your projects with your kind of individual portfolios? Would you kind of put like a project book or portfolio together and insert the individual contribution to that project or would you kind of keep it separate? Um, that's, that's a good question because it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of um, a mixture. So when there's a project going on, I'm just um, looking to see if I have one handy here behind me to show you. Um, when there's a project going on, um, like the water project that I described to you, um, I would be sort of building documentation that's going up for display, you know, along the wall by the coat hooks where parents can see it low so the children can see it. But from that, I would choose pages, I would choose sections of it, if it was about a particular child that contributed something that was really sort of, you know, useful or thought provoking or that the child really enjoyed, I would also print off an extra page of that piece and put that in the child's portfolio. So the documentation can be used in many different ways. Like if you're, if you're building, um, like with the chocolate factory, if you're building, um, you know, a long, because we don't do all our documentation on the same day, you know, it's built day over day after day, if it's a long project. Um, so one day, you know, you might come across something, okay, oh, these three children did this thing, and that was really interesting and unexpected. So for those three children, that piece would go in their portfolios. So you, what you're doing is using your documentation in multiple ways, um, which is very efficient in terms of our time and building portfolios. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. That's one of the things we're doing now in our school. We have our parent meetings coming up. And then some of them are like, oh, do we just spend the whole project as a whole? Or do we focus on the individual child? Or do we merge it together as one kind of flowing piece? Yeah, yes. It's um, for, for teachers, um, we, we have to be, I mean, I'm, I'm a consultant. I do teacher training all over the place these days, mostly online, whereas I used to travel all over the place. Oh, no, um, have you been to China? Usually I ask. No, I haven't. I've been asked to come to China, but I haven't had the chance yet. So I, um, I, so I, have, I have been working with some people in uh, Singapore and Macau. Um, 
online, but I haven't been able to get over there. Um, but it's, um, it's the same challenge for all teachers, no matter where they are in the world. And ch the challenge is time. Yeah. It's always time. Because some schools, if you're very fortunate to be working for a school that has the money and the staffing to be able to get you out of the classroom um, on a regular basis, one afternoon a week or a couple of hours a week or whatever it is, you know, whatever they can afford, that's a gift. That's a really huge gift because then you can reflect together with your, with your teammates yeah. and you can work on some documentation, you can have discussions and it's so helpful. But yeah. here in North America, most schools and childcare centers and preschools, they're so stretched for money and for staff that they, I only know a handful in our area or we live that are able to do that. Most people, most educators are having to be really efficient with their time. And so um, digital documentation helps with that. I mean, even something like um, good old PowerPoint, you know, which has been around forever, is so efficient. I, I use it all the time for making documentation because if I do, um, let's just use an example of the, you know, the movie project where children were trying to make pictures move. If I do a page a day on PowerPoint, I just have to, I just have to uh, drop in an image and, and you know, I can choose any template to put in my text. I don't, documentation is not scrapbooking and it shouldn't be fancy and decorated. It should be clean, professional, simple. And so um, PowerPoint allows me to just drop things in. And of course, there are many software, either documentation apps out there that allow you to do the same thing, but you don't have to have an app if you've got PowerPoint, you print it off, you add it to your ongoing documentation, you might put a piece of it into um, the child's portfolio, and it's sitting there on your computer for you to do anything with, to manipulate, to bring up for a parent, to send out digitally, you can do anything with it. So um, that kind of efficiency really helps because then, you know, in 10 minutes at the end of the day, you can put your reflection in and you've got this ongoing, you know, cohesive yeah. piece of documentation. Time's always the hardest. Um, we're quite yes, it's very hard. Everybody, everybody, I've, uh, everybody have, I've ever worked with is, is struggling with time, time to document. Yeah, it's the hardest thing. Yeah, um, my students nap for two hours, so we have that two-hour time where we can get. Yes. The kindergarten yeah. age, they they don't have naps, so they don't really get any breaks. So for them, it's really difficult to get the time to yes, collaborate and talk. Because by the end of the day, yes. it's kind of like. <laughs> oh yeah, at the end of the day, you're just you know collapsing and your mind is full. Actually, I used to find when I was working with that age group and I didn't have time out of the classroom to, to do documentation, I was doing it. They did have a quiet time. It wasn't a nap time, but it was a quiet time after lunch where they would have mats to sit on and read and do quiet things. It was sort of like, ooh, you know, like a catch your breath time before yeah. they launched into the afternoon. That was useful for us to have little meetings between two or three of us to have a little chat and then on the way home my drive home took 40 minutes and so that drive home is where i would think through the day yeah. so that the next day i was mentally prepared for what i you know to think about what i'd seen and what i was going to do in response um but i would say you know most people here in north america don't have time out of the classroom um their organizations just can't afford it and so um it, it's a struggle it's always a struggle and some teachers are just very good at getting around that struggle they're very creative um there's there's one organization here and i mentioned them in a couple of my books called small world early learning center and what they do is they bring their documentation to staff meetings it's always a part of a staff meeting to have somebody everybody brings their documentation and they will focus on one person and they'll, you know, the person might say, okay, we've been really puzzled by this thing that the children are into right now. And we're not quite sure where our next step is gonna be. And they'll show the documentation and then the rest of the staff will, you know, everybody will have a big discussion. Yeah, I think that's very mm -hmm. important, isn't it? Having I can say, I can, I can, right. yeah, I consider that a form of professional learning. Yeah. That's valuable professional learning because you're in collaboration with your peers, you're sharing work. I mean, let's face it, um, in most schools, when the classroom doors are closed and when the day starts, none of us know what's going on in anybody else's classroom. Yeah. Unless, you know, you're very sort of isolated yeah. and we're not sharing our work, I think, as much as we should. And I mean, so docu documentation is great for that. Where you say, you know, you leave the kind of 
I'm sure it was in one of your books here, leave the administrative stuff like an email or something else. Yes, yes, I did say that. Yeah. yeah. And that's uh, the center I just described. That's what that's what they do. They if it's if it's business stuff or memos or reminders or just routine stuff that goes out in an email, you know, and that that's stuff that teachers can read, you know, uh, you know, when they're reading their lunch or something, they can just catch up on the business stuff and um, but the but the really in-depth discussions those happen at staff meetings and the brainstorming that goes on that's I think that's really helpful. What, what kind of sizes do you have in North America in terms of departments? Like how many classes would you have in a department? Well, it, it varies tremendously uh, within towns, within provinces, and within the country. It, it varies. So, in in a in a school, for instance, I worked at a private school called Halifax Grammar School. And in that school, there were two um, pre, uh, what we called um, like like a junior kindergarten. It's like a preschool age. There were two of those. There were two kindergarten classrooms, and then two of every grade going through. But that differs from in every school. That's different. Yeah. And some schools, like in in Toronto, the bigger cities, you're going to have schools with three or four kindergartens uh, and so on. So your kindergarten department you know, is big and it might have 12 staff. And in other schools, it's two, you know, two yeah. staff. So, so we, um, in China, we have average probably around 20 classes. Wow. So Huge. like, yeah, so yes. now on now, we only have 11, we're okay. But I've worked in schools where we had 30 plus classes. So it's really hard wow. to get that time together. Although we had really, the one I worked in with 30 plus classes, we had really great PD because yes. we worked together and we could like have all kinds of activities going on. Yes, because you, you've got a huge population, so much more than Canada's. Yeah. Canada is a huge country with a low population. Yeah. Much of the north, much of the north is empty. So, you know, it, it, the population of Canada is spread along sort of the border to the United States and up the coasts. But the, the middle part of Canada in the north is, is very, um, is very empty. And so the population is much smaller, our schools are smaller, which, which has some advantages, but, but, but then there are advantages for bigger schools too. I can see that in China, with that size of department, um, you'd have great opportunities for a community of practice within the school. And yeah. it, could be an on, it could be an online community of practice, rather than trying to get all those people together. You know, it could be, um, you could be together online in a Zoom meeting, uh, or it could be an online presentation of documentation um, once a week or something. You know, it could be, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of opportunities there. Or, you know, um, the thing is with communities of practice, and we're doing one now in North America called Roe, Reimagining Our Work with Margie Carter and Anne Pello. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing this in North America where we have communities of practice that are centered on particular topics. So let's say within your kindergarten, you know, 20 classrooms, you have a group of people that are very interested in learning more about emerging curriculum and another group of people who want to know more about documentation and another group who want to talk about in-depth inquiry. You could have separate communities of practice for all those people to have these discussions rather than having a huge group where not everybody will be heard because there wouldn't be time. Yeah. So to split it up into smaller groups might be might be useful. That's very interesting you said that because uh, during our onboarding for our store in August, like our uh, prep week before school opened, I was supposed to do a, a presentation on your book uh, with a colleague about what we learned in our book study with your book and uh, what we can apply to our practice. And one of the things I said was, uh, or we should do is arrange kind of uh, projects, teacher projects, research projects, which is kind of the same thing you're saying now, where we kind of work in small groups based on what we're interested in. It could be improving yes. circle time. It could be like yes. English as a second language. But unfortunately, yes. it got cancelled just due to time and many teachers yes. still outside the channel, outside of China, so we never got to do it. That's like yes. good idea. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You could, you could have some meat. And teachers, uh, adults, just like children, learn best about what they're interested in and are motivated to learn about what they're interested in rather than a sort of top-down, this is what we're going to learn about in our PD. It's yeah. a bottom-up, um, okay, this is what we're interested in in our classroom. This is what's exciting to me. This is what I want to learn more about. That kind of um, PD really motivates people to be there and to, and to take what they've learned and use it 
because it's on a topic that they've chosen. So much PD um, around any topic, emerging curriculum or anything else can be very inspiring, but then it gets lost in the, you know, the everyday, you know, multitasking and everybody's overwhelmed with work and it doesn't get used. But if you have a community of practice um, and you meet once a month and you're gonna be discussing what you tried in response to what you talked about last time, that's very motivating for, for trying new things. And if emerging curriculum is new to some people, it's very, or if it feels, um, I must say that um, disequilibrium, that feeling of discomfort is not a bad thing. It, it, yes. it shows that you're growing, you know, it shows that you're thinking. And so that little bit of discomfort is okay. And it's normal, we're human. And um, that little bit of disequilibrium can be conquered and you can feel more comfortable if you get a chance to practice what you've talked about with your PD group or through your reading. I think people need the chance to sort of slow down, go away and practice little tiny steps and then come back and talk about it and how it felt. Yeah, so that's my team in our first year. I'm not sure we're doing it right, the radio, the emerging, I went, if we're not sure, then we're probably doing it on the right track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfectly fine to be not sure, yeah. yeah. Try um, it out. I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning, but I, I know three of your books are in Chinese. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is really helpful because a lot of people, you know, I've, we spoke to like uh, Teacher Tom. Uh, we spoke yes. to, do you know Greg Bottrell from the UK? Yes. He did the kind of go page and like, his books are not in Chinese yet, but it's coming. But it's really helpful that you've got uh, so many books that the Chinese readers can access, which is really yes. helpful. And it, it, it was... It was really interesting for me. Those just came out last year. And Redleaf, my publisher, told me that they were going to do that. They, they, were, they, they, they had had a request from, from China to, to have them published in Chinese and from a Chinese publisher. And Redleaf was delighted to, and I was delighted to have that happen. Yeah. Um, and when I received them, I looked at them and I thought, wow, this is really, it was, it was mind boggling to see them in that format. Of course, you completely have no clue, you know, what it, what it says and the illustrations are different and the format is different, but it's, it's such a, such a thrill for me to see it in another language. And then they've just been also um, combined. My books have been combined into one of my big texts in Greece and published in Greek. So um, I haven't seen that one yet, but it, it's very interesting for me to see, um, of course, of course, to me, it looks very strange, but I'm delighted that it's more accessible to more people. We're so useful for bilingual teams, like many schools in China have an international teacher, Chinese teacher. So yes. the first book we read was Working in the Regio Way. Mm -hmm. And the problem is only in English, but then all the Chinese teachers have to read it. And, it, and you know, it's very difficult to read something that's got so many layers of meaning. Yes, it's because like, these are not concrete concepts. Yeah. They are intuitive and they are multi-layered and very very if, like I, I speak English and French and if I had to read something like that in French I would I would miss so much yeah. uh, of the subtext you know um, that must be very hard yeah no, no, no. and I think I, I think they also published it in Korean I think, oh, really? I think I think so yeah and many of our teachers found it really useful being able to you know good. their team about That's what they read it in their first language rather than the second language yes um, I think yeah. we've only got maybe about five, six minutes left. Um, I want to talk about kind of second languages, learning second language. Mm. Um, we're in a very difficult situation, I think, because, you know, um, English is not just a language they learn, but it's like a very important language parents want them to learn and they pay for them to go to school to learn English. Yes. It's very hard to do emerging curriculum when you don't understand what the children are saying. You talked a lot about, yes. you know, listening to what the children are saying, noting it down. So yes be very adept with um observing that the other languages children have like the languages of blocks the languages of clay the language of paper but then yes. so much on my chinese team to really note down what the children are actually saying and talking about so i wonder if you have any advice for that with learning the initial second language also doing things like circle time in a second language mm. very very yeah very difficult we we have the same thing here we have a very um all across Canada, we have a well. We have two official languages, English and French, and um, 
by far the majority of children are speaking English, but, but we do get um, French speaking children in our classrooms. But then we also have a lot of diversity from around the world because we are a university city. We have set in this tiny province of Nova Scotia, we have seven universities, which is, oh, wow. you know, crazy. And so um, we, have, we have people from all over the world, including Asia. And so, um, of course, we have children who don't speak any, any English. And my biggest experience with that was when I worked at Purdue University in the States. I was running a lab school there um, where in one classroom we had children from 17 countries. And for most of them, most of them didn't speak English at all. And um, some of them were um, just you know, getting into becoming bilingual, you know, they're sort of just on the verge. But we had some children who wouldn't speak at all um, because we were speaking English. Their parents wanted them to speak English. We were speaking English. And so they were immersed in a new language and they wouldn't speak at all. And this is very common that there's a period of silence when a for up to six months while a child yeah. is absorbing and code switching and figuring out this, this new language. And so we, we depended very heavily on visual, for circle times, very heavily on visual cues. Um, everything was, um, our circle times here have moved away from, uh, in general, not just for second language students, but um, in general have moved away from talk and are more into action, um, props, objects, um, visuals, taking documentation back to circle time, that these days, that's what we're using our circle times for. Um, not so much talk, but the, certainly the props were absolutely, for me working in that environment of Purdue University, that the props were absolutely essential. And one thing that's sort of um, come out of, sort of grown out of favor because it's considered old fashioned is flannel board. Um, flannel board pieces, you know, um, for the children to be able to manipulate and talk about and for us at circle time to be able to use as well as language experience charts and um, things like that, um, flannel board was really useful for naming things. Yeah. Um, the conversational piece of, of language, the spoken language, um, I mean, there's nothing but time that can, that can really address that um, and taking time with it and just having people who, so you would you would have um, a Chinese teacher and an international teacher in each classroom, is that correct? Two Chinese teachers and one international Two Chinese. teacher. Okay, yeah. so general conversation um, about things that they are interested in with the English, with the international teacher is vital as much conversation and storybooks with good illustrations. Um, reading reading to children who are learning a second language is huge one of the one of the biggest tools they had was to read books that were um at their level of understanding um in terms of the story but very simple in terms of the text and again it's you know you have to do a lot of research to find those just the right level books but reading to them every day several times a day it's, it gives us, for children learning a second language, it was the same for me when I was learning French. Um, it's comforting to be, uh, to have someone reading you a story that you can respond to. Um, it gives you a little confidence yeah. to say something, you know, it, it pulls language out. That, that's what I found, yeah. Yeah, I think when I first, when we started doing the Reggio, I, I got very involved with trying to be like a Reggio what I thought was a radio teacher would have kind of asked me like very open-ended, deep questions and stuff. But the problem is the children couldn't understand any of the questions. Yeah, and exactly. Then, yeah. The last 10 months have really reflected on my, how I can be most useful in the classroom for children. So I've kind of changed now to more of a co-player with the children to observe yes. it in the play. So let yes. the Chinese teachers do more of the circle times, bringing out those conversations and their ideas in Chinese. But then yes. when in the play, joining them and kind of naming things and bringing language to the play, um, which seems to be working so far. Um, but it, yeah, it's still tricky because it's like, if I just, if we yeah. went all English, I know that English would improve much quicker. But yes. if, we, if we stay with still like a half and half or more Chinese, I know their general well-being will be better because they're expressing themselves in the language they feel most comfortable with. And I suspect that over the course of the term, it will shift. 
um, because yep. you would need more, um, you would need to depend more on the Chinese teachers initially to translate for you, to interpret for you what the children are thinking. And the trouble is with translation and interpretation, those are two different things. Yes. So somebody can translate for you exactly what the child is saying, um, especially in a circle time discussion. You can get that exact translation. But if the person tends to not translate, but interpret, you're actually getting the teacher's interpretation. Yeah. Right. So that's a whole different thing because there might be pieces missing that you would have picked up on, you know, because you are involved in this project with them. Um, so, so there's, we've talked about this a lot in terms of Reggio Emilia. All of their work and their writing is originally in Italian and it's translated. And we've had, and when you go to their study tours in Italy, they have an interpreter and she's very clear on, I am an interpreter, I'm not a translator. Um, and that, and she is, her name is Jane and she does all the study tour interpretations. And I've gotten to know her well because I've seen her on all these video conferences as well. And she knows so much about the philosophy and the deep, deep background of Reggio Emilia that when Reggio teachers speak in Italian during the lecture, she doesn't just translate, she interprets their meaning and she gives extra explanation. And that is so valuable. Yep. And we've had big discussions here about all these things we're reading from the textbooks, the articles from Reggio Emilia, they are translated. And did the translator capture the true meaning of what they're saying? So very it's, this, it, it's very important, the, yeah. the interpretation. Yeah, my yeah. wife and I have, when we do our articles, we have many discussions about if I write it first, and then she tried to try to discuss on what do you mean by that? Or what do you mean? And we talk a lot about yes. it to make sure yes. translating the words. But you're so lucky to, you're so fortunate to be in that situation where you have, um, uh, you know, you, a partnership there where you can work on that together and you can figure out not just translation, but meaning and um, that it's, that it's um, interpreted correctly, you know, by the, by the listener. So um what you know what you're trying to get across actually gets there and I and it's the same in the classroom in circle times if you've got a if you've got a project going on um, and there's some deep thinking going you suspect you know there's some deep thinking going on and you've seen the engagement of the children you're not able to understand everything that they say and and for the Chinese teacher to have a conversation about that um, how she interprets that to you afterwards is hugely hugely important um, and I, I, that, I guess that should be a topic of discussion all the time at the school. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good. I can bring up to my department, head of department. Because I think that's really yes. important when we talk to each other about making sure not just translating, but we're really interpreting what we're saying to each other and understanding the meaning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's but, very uh, tricky. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you.